Well, good morning to all of you. If you don't know who I am, my name is Aaron. I'm the associate pastor here at Hope Community Church, and I just wanted to say again, happy Mother's Day. I'm grateful for my own mom who raised me and changed my diapers and nurtured me. I'm grateful to the mother of my own children. I'm grateful for the three women I have the privilege of working with here on staff, Carrie, Jennifer, and Janelle, who in many ways treat me like a son. And I'm grateful for all the moms in this church who are godly examples uh, for the body. This is an exciting week for our church. This Friday, uh, a, a lovely couple are celebrating 50 years of marriage. Can you believe it? What a long time to be married. I haven't done anything for 50 years. So Mark and Melody Anderson, I'm going to do it. You're going to stand for us all. Go ahead. Come on. Yeah. Melody, congratulations. Yes. Now, if you noticed earlier, they had some donuts and they were celebrating with their church and they wanted to do that with their church family. So um, thank you for the encouragement and example you are to the rest of us and to what many of us aspire to do. Before we begin, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you, God, for your word that through it you speak. God, I pray that as we consider this passage, God, we be mindful that your spirit, um, its role is to bring conviction. And I pray, Lord, that, that as we hear these words and we consider the issue of sexual immorality, Lord, that we would be people who pursue holiness. God, may we seek to conform to your word. And Lord, may we sit rightfully under its authority. So give us the faith to do that, to make much of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Have you ever noticed that Americans love their freedom? We love the Fourth of July and the Revolutionary War. We love talking about bad kings and tyrannical leaders. In fact, just this last week, I was watching some of the, the reruns of the coronation of King Charles, and I heard from two separate people the exact same thing. Didn't we win a war to not have to watch the coronation of kings? <laughs> I, I thought the transcendence of the service was breathtaking in a way. But Americans love their freedom. We love talking about our freedom of religion, our freedom of speech, our freedom of press, and from a young age, we, we kind of get this ingrained in us. Remember on the recess, the playground, someone is doing something annoying. They're being obnoxious or bratty. They're saying something. And you tell them to knock it off. And they kind of quit back. Well, it's a free country. I could do what I want. Well, go do it over there. Well, it's a free country. I'm going to do it right here. And so from the youngest of ages, we as Americans learn to love the themes of liberty and freedom. And certainly those are great themes and wonderful virtues that we should celebrate and, and cherish and even protect. At the same time, though, I think all of this freedom talk does a disservice to us. Because sometimes the talk of freedom translates into the only person that I am accountable for is me, myself, and I. 
Ever since Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden, humans have a tendency to believe that the only person that they are really accountable to is themselves. We are free to do whatever we want as long as it's not illegal or it doesn't harm anyone. And so, in many ways, isn't this the human condition? The lie that who I am and what I do, that my body belongs to me, my body, my choice. And so one of the clearest ways I think this rogue form of individualism expresses itself clearly in culture today is with regards to sex. You think it's Mother's Day and you're talking about sex. Well, in this church, we go to the next passage, and by God's grace and his providence, we are considering a passage about how Christians should properly understand their sexuality and how they are called to flee from sexual immorality and please God with their bodies. And so if you have your Bibles, would you please open to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul wants the Corinthian believers to know that what they think about sex matters. In fact, the whole book is pivoting on this idea that now that we have the gospel, how do we live our lives in light of what Christ has done on the cross? And so for primarily most of the book so far, we have seen that the gospel produces unity. But also the gospel affects our relationships with one another. Last week we saw that we shouldn't sue one another. We should Make sure that we learn to take grievances in a way that would honor Christ. But today, Paul wants us to be clear about these bodies, this flesh and bones that we have, matter significantly to the Lord. And so let's consider the passage now in 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 12. That is 1 Corinthians, the big 6, and then find the small 12. All things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. A good summary of this passage is a reworking of what Paul says in verse 20. We'll have it on the screen for you. It's this. You belong to God, therefore, 
honor God with your body? Am I only accountable to myself? Do these limbs and members and this body of mine only matter what I want to do? The Bible in this passage is very clear that the answer to that is no. You belong to God. Therefore, honor God with your body. Christians are people who understand that since they are now in Christ, a fundamental shift has happened. Everything is new. They are, as what Scripture refers to as new creations or new creatures. And we noticed this last week in the passage in verses 1 through 11 of the same chapter, that we have a new identity. We are no longer sinners. We are those who have been washed, those who have been sanctified. We have been justified. That is our identity. With our new identity, though, comes a new responsibility. We are to turn from sin. But these Corinthian believers, though, even though they had received the gospel, there was some wires that were being crossed. There was some misconceptions about their theology, about what does it mean now to live a Christian life. There was the danger of the Corinthian culture influencing the Corinthian believers more than the gospel was influencing them. And so what Paul needs to do is help actually correct some of these misconceptions. And I think it's particularly relevant for us today because the, the, the misconceptions that the Corinthian church had primarily around bodily autonomy and sexuality are a lot of the same misconceptions we see currently in our world. And so what I'd like to do for our time in the beginning is I want to use the first three verses to kind of address some of these misconceptions of the Corinthian culture and, and use those three verses to set up Paul's theological reasons as to why we are to honor God with our bodies. And so you'll notice in your notes that there's three deficient views that these Corinthian believers were given to. The first is they had a deficient view of Christian liberty. Look at verse 12. All things are lawful for me. Now, if you're a good stu student of the Bible and you make some observations, you notice that those words are in quotations. So probably what is happening, and we're not completely sure, Paul could be quoting from Stoic philosophers of his day and making some form of diatribe argument, but more than likely, what Paul is doing is he's quoting a slogan that was used by these Corinthian believers to give license for why they can have sex with whoever and whenever they want. And so they're saying, going around as they're visiting prostitutes, well, hey, we're free in Christ. All things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but Paul says, I will not be dominated by anything. They apparently thought that since they have grace, since their sins have been forgiven, and that they are no longer accountable to all the religious ceremonial laws of Judaism, they're just free to use their bodies however they want. But Paul would say this in Galatians 5, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as opportunity for the flesh, 
but through love serve one another. This is maybe the danger of the idea of freedom, is that we think we have unconditional limits to do whatever we want because we are quote-unquote free. The Bible's definition of freedom is not that you can just do whatever you want now. The Bible describes all of us before we are Christians as people who were enslaved to sin. Sin ruled the day. It always won. You obeyed your master well. Even in the good things that you did, sin was the driving sea of your heart. You couldn't do good even if you wanted to. Why? Because you were a slave to sin. But something happened to you when you became a Christian. Let's use the language that he has in verse 11 that we considered last week. Something, something fundamentally changed when you were converted. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. And so here is what fundamentally happens when you become a Christian. You were enslaved to your sin. You always did it. But Christ has now given you the ability, the freedom to say no to sin. And that is what we use our freedom for. It is not a license to continue to go back into the enslaving practice of sin. Our freedom is to be used to serve and to love and to obey our new master, Christ. And so they apparently thought that if something isn't downright said we can't do it, then we can just go ahead and indulge. And I think there's even room where Paul is talking about here that something might be a good thing, but you still should not do it because it enslaves you. This is the conversation that Christians have around a conscience. Some people feel fine to watch certain movies, and some people don't. We need to be aware that something that might not necessarily be a sin can still dominate and overpower us. And so Paul says, I don't use my freedom to just do whatever I want. This is the misconception they have, and it's the misconception that we have. But here's the point. The point of Christian freedom is to be free from sin, not to sell yourself back into it. More than this, they had a, a, a deficient view of sex. Look what he says in the next verse. Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Again, quotations. That they're probably resigning sex to a normal biological function. When you get hungry, you get an apple and you satisfy your appetite. When you have a sexual desire, you just feel free to indulge. It's not much any different than going to the bathroom or eating a meal. It's just part of the biological reality that we have. A normal functional desire. Paul says God will destroy both one and the other. The Corinthians had too high a view of sex, and they had a much too low view of sex. You have to understand the context to which these Corinthian believers were living in. Corinth was a city that was right on a seaport, and so you had money coming in and out of the port town with men and women available for all of these sailors. So bad was the, the Corinthian sexual morality that the, the city itself developed a euphemism that to Corinthianize yourself was to commit sexual immorality. 
that he was known for the temple of Aphrodite, which, was had, which had a booming prostitution business. Everywhere they went in their culture was about sex. And so later in chapter 7, Paul has to literally tell them, hey, Corinthian believers, to be celibate, to not have a sex life, is actually better. The thought that you couldn't have sexual fulfillment to them was unthinkable, as it is today. So they had a, a way too high view of sex. More than that, they had, they had a too low view of sex. That they just thought you can just resign it to a bodily function, that whenever you feel like it, give in. If, if your wife or your husband doesn't want to have sex with you, go down and, and, and get a prostitute. Nothing wrong with that. And so it is in our culture in which we are told that, that part of being a person is to have sexual desires and to have this fulfillment. But at the very same time, we don't even care who we sleep with and we have partner after partner after partner. Our culture demonstrates too high a view of sex and too low a view of sex. Before a Christian, sex is not something that we need to be prudish about. Sex is a wonderful gift from God, something to be enjoyed in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. Sex is not something to, to be shy about. It is a, a wonderful way in which God uses to bring man and woman together and to make them closer in a marriage at the very same time. Listen very carefully. Sex is not everything. It is not penultimate. A lot of this next stuff I will say comes from a book by Andrew Wilson, God of All Things. And he lists out a number of reasons why God gave us sex in the first place. The first one is obvious. God gave sex for the procreation of children. God wants to see more image bearers. Christians have always believed that it is a good and desirous and God-glorifying thing for a woman to want to be a mother. Children are a heritage of the Lord. They might be messy. They might be expensive. But they are the best blessings we can have. Certainly, I want everyone to understand that, that if, if you want to have a child and you can't, we, we understand the limitations on, on finances, on health. But with that said, Christians historically have always been people who say, the more the merrier. But more than just procreation, God has given us sex to reflect the harmony of creation. You see in the creation account all of these complementary pairs coming together. You have light and darkness, land and sea, earth and sky, male and female. The sexual union between male and female in the context of marriage, it brings a, a harmony to God's creation. Sex is about worship. So much in the Old and New Testament, idolatry and sexual immorality are tied together. That when you begin to worship the created more than the creator, typically what happens is sexual immorality. The more God you have, the more sexual partners you have. And so faithfulness in worship often comes with faithfulness and fidelity. We worship in sex. But primarily... Sex is about the gospel. There is no 
better metaphor and picture for the love that Christ has for his people than in the intimacy of marriage of a man and a woman. Think about this. When we get married, we mysteriously become one flesh. We make promises that we are to forsake all others. We exchange rings. We celebrate with a meal. We share all of our worldly possessions. We take on a new family name. And then we have sex as a physical seal of our commitment, trusting that out of it, God will bring forth new life. Now, in many ways, faithful sex is not just committing yourself to the person who you're having sexual union with, but it's also to the little person who may come after. And so think about all of these things that are rehearsed in marriage and in a wedding. Jesus promises never to leave us or abandon us. We promise to forsake all other gods as long as we both shall live. He gives us the seal of the covenant, the Holy Spirit, and he provides a meal to celebrate with the whole family at the Lord's table. All of his possessions become ours, and all of our debts become his. We take on his name. We enter into union with Christ, and we get baptized in water as a physical seal of our commitment, trusting that God will bring forth new life. Sex for the believer is never a merely biological or bodily function. It is a celebrated, cherished, beautiful thing because unlike anything else we have in life, it points to the reality of what we have in Christ. Every pleasure in life is a divine foretaste of our lives in Christ. The reason why drink and food are pleasurable is because it is pointing us to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And sex, which is probably the greatest pleasure in life, is a mere shadow, a pointing to the greater reality of our lives with Christ. So sex for a Christian is cherished, it is beautiful, but it is not everything. In fact, the people in the New Testament who talked most about sex were single and who never actually got married because they understood it's just pointing us to something better. But lastly, these believers had a deficient view of the body. I haven't even got to the passage yet, I'm sorry, but we're going to go a little quicker when we get into it, but hang on there. They had a deficient view of the body. In many ways, I think this passage is, is not just about sexual morality, but it's a theology of the flesh and bones that we have. They lived in a world of dualism in which the material world was bad and the immaterial world was good. This, this, this kind of thought gave rise to a later heresy known as Gnosticism, in which God only saved our spirit and our soul, but he didn't actually save us with our bodies. Your bodies, therefore, are just there for pleasure. So give in to all the hedonistic pleasures that you want to. And Paul says, absolutely not. Look what he says. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. We do not have a redemption from the body. We have a redemption of the body. Heaven is not some state in which we are like Angels floating in disembodied clouds all throughout eternity. Our hope 
is a resurrected, glorious body like Christ himself. Heaven is just the intermediate place where our souls are kept until the promise of the new creation comes. This is why in Romans 8 we read that creation is eagerly awaiting the revealing of the sons of God. This flesh and bones matters immensely. And so during Christmas time, when we celebrate the incarnation, the grand and, how would I say it? The grand and over-celebrated incarnation is God's great yes to creation, to this body of yours. Now, when Mary looked at her little baby, she would have said, flesh of my flesh and bones of my bones. So for a Christian, this body is not something that's just a, a skeleton of what is holding us on the inside. What we do with our actual members matters because this is how we live out our discipleship and our fellowship of Jesus. Still to this day, people have an a, a unbiblical view of the body. We hear people on the abortion spectrum say that a person isn't really a person until they can contribute morally, before they can speak. Absolutely not. The body is God-glorifying. There are those who would say that sex between homosexuals doesn't need to be a functional pair. All that really matters is the emotional, relational component that comes with it. No, what we do with our bodies matters. How about even transgenderism? That the true self is the self on the inside, and it doesn't matter what the outside body is. The body matters for the Christian. And so Paul wants all of these believers to know that how we treat our bodies, how we view sex, how we understand Christian liberty makes all the difference. If I could just maybe for a moment pause and just recognize the cultural moment that we're in. It's no surprise that a lot of people in recent days have left the church because of the very things that I'm saying right now. And I'm not here to, to get into every little cultural discussion, but there's a reality in which we need to recognize that when we look at other people who aren't Christians and they are not withholding to a biblical view of sexuality and people will scratch their heads and say, well, hey, they look happy. They're not bothering anyone. Why is it so wrong to tell them that they can't do this? And so, unfortunately, the church then appears to be bigoted, appears to be haters, that we don't care about love. If I can even speak from a personal experience, growing up as a young man, I was told by well-intentioned people, good people, things I heard, whether my own local church or from other people, that you should wait to have sex because you'll have a better sex life later. Or seventh grade being taught abstinence in my junior high. Don't have sex or you'll get a disease. Now the reality is those things might be true. But for a Christian, we do not hold to a conservative sexual ethic because it's practical. We hold to a, a conservative sexual ethic because it's who we are as Christians. 
Paul does not give practical reasons to avoid sexual morality. He gives theological reasons. And so the more we can teach our young people, and the more we can communicate to unbelievers the real reasons why that ultimately all sexual morality is a phony and it is a distortion of the biblical picture of the gospel, we will be perceived as bigots. And so what Paul does here in the rest of our time, he gives us a, a Trinitarian theological explanation as to why Christians avoid sexual morality. Why should we honor God with our bodies? First point, our bodies are members of Christ. Look at verse 15. Do you not know? In essence, he's saying, surely you know, right? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Paul here is saying, when you become a Christian, your union with Christ is so remarkably close. What you do with your body, it represents Christ. Again, just like a marriage, there is this, this, this spiritual union that is taking place. Here's, here's what a union is. A union is, is, a, is a, a kind of a two people coming together who are separate and who remain their separateness, but there is an erasing of all divisions. And so when you get married, there is this union. The two shall become one flesh that Paul will quote here in a minute. You still remain one man and one woman. One likes pineapple on their pizza, one doesn't, right? Those, those things are still the same. And yet, spiritually and emotionally and relationally speaking, there's this mystical reality in which you are one. And this is, again, the picture of what happens when we become Christians. We don't become God. We're still humans, but we are one with Christ. We are literally members, as he says in verse 15, members of Christ. And so we have to understand that when people come here to church, we are his body. We are literally his hands and his feet. When people come to church, they should experience the love of Christ, the service of Christ, the prophetic teaching ministry of Christ, that they should feel Christ's body, because that's what we are. And so Paul says, if you are members of Christ, members of his body, would you then take Christ, members of Christ, and unite them to a prostitute? Perish the thought. Never may it be. Christ is opposed to all evil. And so we have to understand that the reason why, as Christians, we honor God with our body is because our bodies don't belong to us. We are in Christ. This identifying feature of Jesus with his body is something we see through the whole New Testament. In fact, when the Apostle Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians, even in his own conversion experience, he's on his way to go kill Christians, and he hears this, this voice and this bright light, and it's Jesus, and Jesus says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Now, what's interesting about that is Saul was persecuting Christians, but Jesus says, you're persecuting me because Jesus so identifies with his people that they are his very body. And so what Paul does here in verse 16, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? 
And we'll get to this later in, in, in verse 18, but here's, here's a little sneak peek. Sexual union unites you to another person in a way that nothing else can. And because marriage is to be a picture of our closeness and union to Jesus, all sexual morality distorts that picture. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Again, that's what he's saying. We are not just physically joining to people when we have sex with them. There is a mystical union that is taking place. And so this is why in the Old Testament, God says, don't sleep with an animal. Don't have an affair. Don't have sex with someone until you're married. Because it blurs the best image we have of Christ's love for the church. And so because we are members of Christ, here's the logical implication of all this. What does he say in verse 18? Flee from sexual immorality. Don't fight it. Flee from it. We need to be like Joseph. When Potiphar's wife was putting the moves on him, he ran the other way. We need to make no opportunity for the flesh. We understand that this is a sin that is particularly enslaving because of the nature of the union. We need to be people who watch the things that we listen to and the entertainment we consume and the jokes that we laugh at and the thoughts that we give free safe harbor to in our minds. What are the things that cause you to deaden your resolve to flee from sexual immorality? Christians take a hard stance on sex because of what it says about the nature of the gospel. Again, it's, it's, it's more theological. As a pastor, I have to be mindful of the people in the room here. A room this large, there are people who I know who are caught up in sexual sin, who may hear this strong line and maybe feel shame or embarrassment or guilt. Now, in one sense, I hope there's a godly amount of conviction from the Spirit. But at the same time, because we know that the sin is so enslaving, it ought to help us to be the most gracious and compassionate and patient people possible. This is not a sin to be taken lightly. And so I just want to encourage you, if you're someone here and, and you are struggling with sexual sin, please do not try to attack it alone. Confess your sin. Find a safe, faithful brother or sister to fight this sin with. Do not stay silent with your sin. To the young people here, I understand that I'm about to sound very old-fashioned and very prudish, but this passage is a great passage to remind you of why it is so important to wait to have sex before you get married. I'm not going to promise you a, a number of practical reasons why that's a good idea. The reason why you shouldn't do it is because all sexual activity outside the commitment found in the context of marriage is a distortion of your union with Christ. Communion without commitment 
dishonors God. Now, this used to be a virtue. And now it seems it's almost hate speech. But here's what we need to, to, to say, to summarize. Inside of marriage between a man and a woman, sexual intimacy is something that God blesses and he sanctifies. Later in chapter 7, Paul will even say to, to both husbands and wives, do not withhold sex from your spouse. It is a wonderful, cherished thing that God uses to bring forth other forms of intimacy. But outside of marriage, sexual intimacy curses and defiles. Honor God with your bodies because you are members of Christ. More than this, though, he says that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. If you look down in your Bibles in verse 18, he says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, there's been no shortage of debate as to what Paul meant here. If I go back home today and I grab a 24 case of Coors Light and I get drunk, Certainly that is a sin that I'm committing against my own body. If I harm myself today, I am committing a sin against my body. So how is it that sexual immorality, Paul says here, sins against his own body? Why is it that sexual sin is reserved as a a much worse sin than than other sins against the body? Well, again, it, it goes right back to what Paul was just saying. That no other sin attacks the body and the wholeness of our bodies in the same way as sexual sin. With your mind, your will, your emotions, your memory, sex unites us to a person in a way that no other sin can. Only sexual sin unites the body of Christ to the object of desire. And so Paul says, back in chapter 11 though, This, excuse me, back in verse 11, this is what some of you were. We were given over to our passions. We did what our hearts wanted to do, but something changed fundamentally when we became Christians. We received the Holy Spirit. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? When we read about all the Levitical codes, all the times in which God calls us to be holy as he is holy, when we read about all the rituals that went into the temple, we see God's holiness, that he is against and separate from moral filth, that for God to dwell in the temple, there was so much they had to do because God is holy. And now what Paul is saying, the reality, he said in chapter 3 that as the church we are the temple, but now here's, here's the most incredible thing. Personally, when you are a Christian, you have the presence of God. This body, with all of its insecurities and receding hairlines and all of its functions, resides the Holy Spirit. Wonder of wonders. In fact, this passage, I think, is used by many other Christians to talk about how we should take care of our bodies, to, to make sure that we hydrate and eat well and sleep and exercise and, and why we should care about the health 
of other people because they are temples of God's Spirit for Christians. And so the Holy Spirit, when he comes into us, he begins to transform us. We begin to become people from one degree of glory to another, more and more like Christ. The the Spirit illuminates us. He gives us the mind of Christ to understand the gospel. He guides us. He produces the Christ-like fruit of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. All of this to help us to be people who are holy. And so the Holy Spirit is the one person who helps us to enjoy our union and communion with God All of the promises we have in the gospel come to us through the Spirit. Paul says, this is why you flee from sexual morality. Because the presence of God is in you now. You have a new hope, new identity, new joy. And the only reason we have a Holy Spirit is because of the third point. Our bodies belong to the Father. Verse 20 for you were bought with a price. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, I'm sure this has been a confusing morning for you. Maybe you hear this line and you think, I don't want to be purchased. I don't want to be a slave to anyone. Maybe you liked that freedom talk earlier in America. It's not French fries, it's freedom fries. The reality is, though, whether you know it or not, you are a slave to something. You may not think that you're a slave, but if you are not a Christian, you are a slave to your sin. You are like the kid at Disneyland who goes on the car ride. And although it looks like you're driving, there is a rail in the middle. And although it looks like you're putting your foot on the gas pedal, it just goes automatically. And sure, you might have one degree of right or left to drive your car. You're not really driving. At the end of the day, as much as you want to believe that you are free, you, in fact, are enslaved to your sins. The slavery that you are in is demonic. Your sin leads to misery. It leads to death. It leads to God's eternal punishment what the Bible describes as hell. You may think that becoming a Christian is people who are bought and now they have to live all these strict sexual ethics, but here's what I'm telling you. Everything that God has for us, even in all the commands and all the laws, are signs and pointers of his great love for us in Christ. So our greatest encouragement for you is to understand no matter what, you are a slave to someone. You will either be a slave to your sin and it will kill you or you can be a slave to Christ. And the beauty for us who are Christians is we know that this slavery has come at a great, great price for you were bought with the price of Christ's blood that he went to the cross and he took all of the sins that were not his in order to give us his perfect righteousness For Christians, we know that before Christ, we were helpless, lost, doomed, without hope, like the song we just sang a moment ago. So here's the truth. You are not your own. You are not your own. 
Everything about you, both body and soul, belong to God. For Christians, this has been historically a great comfort of ours. That both body and soul, we belong to God. And because of that, the greatest and highest ethic of every single Christian, since we belong to God, all of us, is to what? What do you think? Verse 20, glorify God in your body. Do you see the logic that Paul is weaving throughout this whole passage? Your body was not meant for sexual morality. It was meant for the Lord. I skipped over one verse, though. I don't know if you noticed that. Back in verse 14, Paul says this, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. The reason why our bodies are so important is because, just like Christ, we will be gloriously resurrected. If these bodies have eternal significance, it matters what we do with them right now. So your speech, your actions, your thoughts, where you move your feet to, where you move your hands, whatever you are doing, the life of a Christian is wholly absorbed into one thought, may I glorify God that while when I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. The Heidelberg Catechism is a wonderful document explaining the nature of the Christian faith. The very first question and answer says this, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own but belong both body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. I wonder if they were influenced by 1 Corinthians 6. This passage teaches us that you are not your own. You never were your own. You were a slave to sin, but now you have been washed, you've been sanctified, you have been justified. You are members of Christ, temples of the Holy Spirit, and belong to the Father. Therefore, honor God with your body. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the joy of ours to know Jesus Christ, to know him now and to have the promise to know and enjoy him for all of eternity. God, may we commit, all of us individually and as a church, to use our bodies in a way that glorifies and honors you. Lord, help us to fight the temptations of the flesh, to flee from sexual immorality. God, may your church be holy and spotless and blameless as she is in heaven God, help us individually to be people who do not tolerate sin corporately or individually. Help us, Lord, to be like your servant Joseph who ran from sexual sin. And Lord, give us the hope of the resurrection that just as Christ has been raised, so also our bodies will be raised. Lord, help us to take care of these temples that in all things and in all ways we may glorify your holy and blessed name. We pray all this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.